Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome, my friends, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. And uh, I guess who else is here? Alan Dempsey. He's our engineer. He gets us on the air. <clears throat> Andrew Herdliska produces the show. And it's nice to welcome back Angie Ward. She's in Denver, Colorado. Assistant Director of the Doctor of Ministry Program at Denver Seminary. Author of When the Universe Cracks, Living as God's People in Times of Crisis. Well, Angie, welcome back to Orlando. I hope things are well with you. Orlando from Colorado. It's kind of fun. Angie, tell me about your new book. What's the story here? Yeah, so actually I'm the general editor of it, and so um, I was pulled together 10 different uh, voices to write different chapters. So uh, the book is called When the Universe Cracks, Living as God's People in Times of Crisis. And uh, so it was born out of this uh, pandemic that we are still in, but not just for the pandemic. Realize that this is uh, nothing new that God's people experience and the world experiences crises uh, throughout history. And then what is a um, kind of discipleship, God, a God-honoring response to that? Angie, Christine Jeske wrote the first topic, What is a Crisis? Question mark. Can you tell us about that first chapter? Yeah, she's, she is a sociologist, a cultural anthropologist, and so she comes at it and says, you know, like, like the title says, what is a crisis and what does a crisis do uh, to society? And so she talks about crisis brings upheaval for certain, but also brings opportunity, and it reveals a lot of things about us and our, about our cultures and about our societies. As a, a friend said, COVID in particular kind of revealed, kind of made the waterline drop and revealed a lot of things about us individually, about our finances, about our uh, society. Then, uh, secondly, I want you to move on notes on a recent crisis, and that was uh, prepared by D.A. Horton. Yeah, so D.A. Horton's uh, from California, and he wrote about just kind of a, a um, sort of a panoramic view and said, here's what this looks like, in particular with the, the recent crisis being the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic, which we hoped would be maybe over by the time this book came out, but clearly not yet, but he just says, here's what it looks like globally, here's how quickly it spread, here's what happened nationally, here's what it looked like in my region, and here's how, and, and at my church, and here's how it affected my life personally and the upheaval it brought to me personally. Topic number three, Crisis While the World Marches On by Ephraim Smith. Yes, yep, uh, Brother Ephraim Smith. So, um, Ephraim is a powerful voice, and he wrote and he said, you know, even in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and that crisis, there was also the the world marching on, that's a play on, a take on um, the racial protests and marches that were happening uh, at the same time as the pandemic was kind of sweeping across the globe and saying, um, look, the the COVID-19 pandemic has not 
stopped or slowed an even greater kind of endemic issue to culture, which is uh, systemic racism. Uh, topic number four, my guest is Angie Ward. A Brief History of Crisis by Marshall Shelley. What's what's the story here? Yeah, uh, Marshall Shelley, uh, he's a colleague of mine here at Denver Seminary. He he um, just gives a, a sweeping view of history and says, look, this is nothing new. He looks at the fall of Rome, the Black Death, uh, some other crises, the 9-11 terrorist attacks, uh, and just talks about here's historically... Uh, how there's different enduring themes, that crisis is a testing of faith, but uh, again, we should not be afraid. We should look for God's sovereign and redemptive purposes and give the historical framework for that. Uh, Now, tell us about number five, the Bible's catalog of crisis, Sean Gladding. Yeah, so Sean is a pastor, uh, and he writes and says, you know, even in in the Bible, in Scripture, we see different crises happening, and he frames that all through the uh, Israelite people, the Jewish people in exile in Babylon, and uh, how it was that they they wept when they remembered uh, their homeland and how it feels to be displaced and how the Israelites responded to that. Angie, I want you to uh, explain uh, topic number six. Uh, Jesus wouldn't waste a crisis by Lee Lee Ekloff. What's the story here? Yeah. Yes, Lee, uh, another pastor, and he says, you know, our uh, Jesus tells us and told his followers that in this in this world you will experience trials and tribulations and and crises, and that uh, he prepared us for that and his people throughout history to do that. Um, that we shouldn't cower in a corner, but that this is an opportunity to serve others, uh, to to grow closer to Christ, and um, that Jesus is with us in that. Now uh, we've arrived at Joanne Lyon's piece, A Spirituality of Crisis Response. You're going to have to uh, unpack that one for us. Yes. Uh, Yes, Joanne, uh, wonderful um, chapter. She first talks about, you know, what what happens to us spiritually? What's what's a good response uh, in response to crisis with Christ in our life? And so she says, you know, one of the first things it brings is fear. We don't know what's going on. Then there's grief. It really is kind of the stages of grief, uh, if people are, listeners are familiar with that. Uh, and then there's actually a season, and, a, and it's right to lament and to grieve what is lost. And so she provides actually a, just a helpful guide saying that we should not ignore this opportunity for grieving and lament for what is broken in our um, world and in our society. And then <clears throat> we get to um, a piece by... Uh, Cubum yep. <coughs> Lee, Growing a Church in the Ruins. Uh, uh, what, what's going on here? Yeah, Cubum Lee, a professor uh, in Philadelphia, uh, Korean-American, and he says that the crisis, uh, any type of crisis, the COVID-19 in particular, but any type of crisis is an opportunity for the church, the local church and believers around the world, to kind of reshape and reframe uh, um, like in the earlier chapters, you know, crises expose things in our society and in our churches, and um, so that says the response is that um, different opportunities for mission and incarnation will be revealed, um, and this is an opportunity, well, even though it throws us off 
of what's familiar to us. It's, again, it's an opportunity to kind of rethink, reshape, and reframe, in particular, how we think about and how we do church. Angie, how did you decide uh, who the writers were going to be for this project? Yeah, great question. Well, first of all, we looked at the, the book very much has uh, kind of a pastoral discipleship tone, not just a here's what to think, but here's how can we re- respond in Christ's uh, love and Christian love. And so we looked for a, a kind of a diversity of voices, but that all brought that central kind of tone and heart to their writing and to their work. And some are kind of known experts, so the one about what crisis does to society, we looked for someone who has expertise in that. For the history, we looked for someone who had more expertise in that. So expertise combined with a, a particular heart and tone. Angie, before the break here, uh, I want you to tell me um, more about Denver Seminary. What, uh, what, what is the seminary about? Uh, what's uh, your view of it? What's going on at the yes, Denver Seminary? Yes, uh, I'd be glad to. Yeah, and I, I work here. I'm assistant director of our Doctor of Ministry program. I'm also actually an alum. My husband and I met and married here uh, many years ago, and so we uh, moved back here actually during the COVID pandemic, the early days of it, um, in order for me to serve here at my alma mater. Uh, one of the things I love about Denver Seminary that really shaped me, even as a student, was its commitment to what we call charitable orthodoxy. So in times like ours where things become increasingly polarized, we are trying to find a, a common higher ground uh, of, um, of unity in Christ and seeking a way forward, even while respecting that we come from various different traditions. My so guess. we have about, I'd say about 1,000 students um, globally, um, about 700 of those, I think, here in Denver, and we have a master's through PhD program. Angie Ward, When the Universe Cracks, that's her book. Uh, we've got another segment with Angie. Stay with us. <clears throat> but let me just remind you, folks, if, if you have not gotten those COVID shots, uh, just get it done. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's no big deal. Uh, you know, it's healthy. Uh, you protect yourself. You protect your family. More importantly, you protect the community. Uh, they're free. Uh, it doesn't hurt. You'll be fine. Just get it done. Okay, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. <clears throat> Back with Angie Ward right after these messages. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Angie Ward is our guest. She's in Denver. Uh, we're talking about her book, When the Universe Cracks. Living as God's people in times of crisis. Angie, we've gotten to topic number nine. He has shown us what is good by Catherine McNeil. Uh, what, what, what is she telling us? Yeah, she says, she comes back to Micah 6.8. He has shown you, uh, oh, uh, man, what is good to, um, to walk, to love mercy, uh, walk humbly, live justly, and so in the middle of any crisis, we still have our marching order, so to speak, and and uh, provides practical ways and examples of how we can love our neighbor, we can seek justice and uh, uh, walk humbly and demonstrate mercy to those in our very backyard. 
How do we go about doing that? That's a lot easier said than done, isn't it, Angie? It is. It's easy for us to say that in the book, isn't it? Uh, yeah, she says we need to rise from the pews and not just uh, sit in our uh, Sunday services, but also just get out there. She gives some examples about neighbors who reached, uh, pitched, pitched in, provided food for one another, uh, um, started a neighborhood garden, trying to build community and a sense of support. One of the things COVID has done is really enhanced a lot of folks' sense of isolation and aloneness, and so one of the big ways she says is we can just just get out there and meet our neighbors and then, uh, you know, look just for practical needs that we can meet right around us. Are there things we can provide materially? Can we uh, provide just friendship to people to, uh, to eliminate some of that loneliness and isolation? And then at <clears throat> topic 10, God Remains Good by Matt Michelottos. And, yes. and I'm, I'm curious about what that means. Yeah, um, Matt just is probably a wonderful closing to the book. He starts the chapter by just saying what you're feeling is normal, the exhaustion, the questions, the anger, the fear, the uncertainty. And so he says, you know, Elijah felt that. Um, others in the Bible felt that. Jesus felt that. And that, that God sits there with us in that. Mary and Martha asked that in the New Testament when Lazarus, their brother, died. And, and so he says, God is still uh, with us. He's good. Um, there's a better world coming, there, where there's sickness, there will be health, where there is grief, there will be joy. All of these things will, will be redeemed in God's perfect timing, but what we're feeling today is very normal. We can embrace that and let God embrace us. Angie, at the end of the book, <clears throat> there's a seg- segment called Continuing the Conversation, Questions for Reflection and Discussion. Uh, what are some of those questions, and what are some of the discussion points that you get into there? Yeah, they, and they're chapter by chapter, and so the book was designed for, I mean, these questions can be done for personal reflection or in some type of small group or, you know, discussion, even like a book club. And and so it's just every chapter there's about two or three, maybe four questions, and, and just personalizing it. So what does this crisis reveal about your assumptions, your emotions, and your relationships? Um, you know, have you, uh, you know, what perspective from kind of the panoramic to the personal tends to dominate your view? Um, you know, what is it, what is this crisis particular feeling like for you? What gives you your identity? What losses have you had to grieve uh, that cause you to weep? How can you seek the welfare of those around you, even those who may be your perceived enemies? So just all the questions take each of the chapters a step further to personalize and apply that to our own lives. Angie Ward is our guest. Uh, She is in Denver, Colorado. Angie, what goes through your mind when a uh, hurricane hits? Forty people die up in the New York area from flooding, or you uh, yeah. see about an earthquake in in Haiti. I mean, what yeah. goes through your mind? Yeah, uh, I think first just grief for those who are going through that. Uh, you know, I think all of us have experienced some sort of trauma or crisis, and so we just our hearts go out to those folks. And um, yeah, I think. Part of it also, though, is a feeling of wanting to help and sometimes helplessness because there's so so much, so much, many needs, so many things. Sometimes those people are so far away. What can I do? 
Uh, and so sometimes there's a feeling of lostness um, uh, and wanting to help, but uh, also just, you know, drives me to certainly to pray for those people and to examine, are there some things that I can do tangibly or are there things I can do even in my own backyard, even if I can't do something specifically for the folks in those uh, those regions or where things are happening? I guess the thing that goes through my mind when you read something like that, Angie, is how many yeah. how many of those people knew Jesus? How many of them had accepted him? How many of them knew they were going to heaven? Um, you know, what, what, what might go through their minds at that moment of crisis? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, like this book says, Christine Jeske in the first chapter just talks about how crisis just, it, um, really, you know, it is like an earthquake in that it just shakes us to our uh, to our foundation, or shakes our foundation. And so I think, um, yeah, it's normal for all of us to go, what what is up in the world? What is going on? What is this? What is the meaning of life? Uh, I think we we question that, and I think that's an opportunity for us to love our brothers and sisters around us uh, and show them the love of God in practical ways. Angie, you may have hit on the all-time most important question. <clears throat> what is the meaning of life? So, uh-huh. so so, if somebody comes to you and says, Angie, what is the meaning of life? Uh, how, how do you dissect that? What do you, what do you tell them? Yeah, that's a big one. Wow. Uh, uh, thanks for that question. Well, I think uh, the meaning of life, the book of Ecclesiastes, the old wisdom book in the uh, Old Testament of the the Scriptures, uh, says that everything is meaningless under the sun, and that anything that we try to pursue on earth or for just our own pleasure eventually does not bring meaning. But the the teacher in that book of uh, the Bible um, says that there's meaning um, kind of beyond the sun in um, God's greater purposes and that there is a, a universal, uh, a God who is in control ultimately, even if we can't see it, and working to bring about the redemption of all good things. And so the meaning uh, life on earth then has meaning if you're living be- for life beyond the sun and not just under the sun. My guest <clears throat> is Angie Ward. Uh, she uh, is involved, works at her alma mater, uh, Denver Seminary. By the way, uh, Angie, um, yeah. how, do, how do you view young people today? You, you mentioned a thousand people. Uh, what's going on in their life? Uh, are, are you encouraged about our future when you're around these students? I am absolutely 100% encouraged. Uh, I have several colleagues I work with that we're doing some work on uh, just the state of faith among uh, young adults in particular. and. I know there's a lot of uh, doom and gloom and despair and disparaging of younger generations and uh, how they're leaving the faith and leaving the church, but they really are, it's, it's not that they're leaving, they're searching for God, they're searching for meaning. Many of them have vibrant uh, spiritual lives. They're, they're just finding that sometimes uh, current expressions of church aren't um, really speaking to the world's needs as they see them, and so... I think there's a lot of a lot of energy and hope coming from that generation, and I am just delighted to be a part of an uh, institution that to work with those and to to tap into that energy and hope. and And, um, and I want to give other Christians and pastors and those of us listening just hope for what is out there and what is to come. 
at this point in their life, do they have a sense of what their calling is to be ministers, evangelists, um, go to foreign countries and impact them? Do they know what they want to do or where God wants them? Oh, the ones who come here definitely do. Most of them, they come out of a strong sense of, as you said, calling, you know, and uh, they feel like um, Jesus is inviting them to join his work around the world. And for some, that might mean kind of going to missions, traditional missions, but for many, it's much more local. And how can we bring about shalom or peace and redemption of uh, of all things and restoration of all things um, here in this world, as Jesus prayed in the Lord's uh, in the Lord's prayer, "Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven." And so they are seeking to use their energy and their gifts and talents and their resources to bring that kind of hope and healing. Um, throughout our neighborhoods here in Denver, um, really throughout the world, back to some of them, to their home communities, um, and to the world beyond. Um, uh, yeah, just just tremendous hope, uh, hope bringers, I would say. Angie, what uh, is the legacy of Haddon Robinson at D- Denver Seminary? Uh, that's a great question. I'm so glad you, you mentioned Haddon Robinson was a previous president of Denver Seminary, and I would say... One of his legacies was a strong commitment to God's Word and to proclaiming God's Word, not just through preaching in the pulpit. He was named by Time Magazine, I believe, uh, as one of the greatest preachers uh, of the day and of American history, but uh, just a strong commitment um, in keeping with our uh, founder at Denver Seminary, or one of our founders at Denver Seminary, uh, Vernon Grounds, just uh, to proclaim God's truth and, and grace and mercy and love in that truth. Angie, um, can you tell me a, a graduate or two from Denver that we might have heard of? Ooh, boy. Uh, Gordon McDonald. Oh, I don't yeah. know if you've heard of oh, him. Oh, yes. Yeah, Absolutely. Gordon uh, yes. is a, a great graduate. We have um, um, the, the president, I can't think of his name right now, of the Navigators Christian Ministry, has, yeah. is a Denver Seminary grad. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many missionaries who've served all over the world that we you know, haven't heard of, but some... Um, yeah, some great folks have come and gone through the halls of Denver Seminary. Angie, how is somebody called to the mission field? What what goes through their mind? What what happens to them? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think the process of calling, you know, um, I think sometimes it's a clear, um, almost like we see in the Bible, go do this, go to these people. Um, but other times it's, it's kind of a, a revealing of... Um, proximity, like sometimes they'll have a, a short-term mission trip or experience or something where they just, their heart uh, beats for those far from God and also far across the, you know, maybe across the globe. And so it's like a seed that begins to kind of germinate and, and grow, and sometimes it grows and, and explodes very quickly, and other times it's just a, it becomes this deep-rooted, deep-seated uh, love and passion and sense of urgency to reach those around the globe with the gospel. Are those missionaries, uh, by and large, safe, or are many of them in danger? Wow, it really depends on where they are. There are certain parts of the country where they very much are in danger, obviously. We are um, all praying for believers in Afghanistan. As we record this, there's a crisis going on there. There are parts of Southeast Asia where um, there's a lot of persecution, of Christians, there are, there are other parts of the country where they um, are generally safe, but also have very 
hard soil to till in the form of people's hearts uh, for the love of God. Um, and so I'd say globally that there are several regions that are especially hostile to the truth of God's love um, and to the point of, of persecuting and, uh, you know, physically or, uh, and, you know, very much ex- sometimes even very extreme physical persecution, not to mention just trying to shut down gatherings and to try to block the spread of the gospel. Angie, what do you want people, readers and listeners today, what do you want them to take from your book? A sense that this is, uh, this, this crisis that we're going through, an elder crisis that may come up, or what, if you may be going through one in your uh, current context, um, natural disasters or, or other things, that this is, it's nothing new. God, God sees, God knows, God is with us and with you in that. Um, and he is holding us even when, the, as the title says, when the universe cracks and the ground shakes. My guest, Angie Ward. Her book, When the Universe Cracks, Living as God's People in Times of Crisis. Angie, wonderful to catch up with you. Congrats on your book, and uh, I wish you all the very best. Thank you. So good to be here again. I just want to remind you, speaking of books, my latest book is out. It's called Revolutionary Leadership. And we look at 25 key leaders during the Revolutionary War period and what they did as leaders, these, these men and women, some very famous, some not so much. But they all <clears throat> played a key role in this country even coming into existence in winning the Revolutionary War, a war we had no business winning. Great Britain had better everything. Uh, But the little colonies prevailed, and the reason was the uh, colonies had better leadership. Revolutionary leadership. Brian Kilmeade of Fox & Friends wrote the foreword. I think you'll enjoy it. Well, we've got more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay right with us here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Angie? Yes, sir. You were terrific. Thank you. Good. Thank, thank you. you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here for us. I'm uh, I'm very grateful. And Great. When do you think this will air? Do you know? I, I can tell you when it's going to air. It's going to air on September 25th. Great. Uh, um, and that's a Saturday. And, um, and so that, that's the story. And, Great. Thank okay. you so much. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Angie. All the best to you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tanya Hendricks. Yes, this is Tanya. She's on the line with you. Tanya Hendricks. Pat Williams here in Orlando. Tanya, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, it's actually pronounced Tanya. Tanya? Yes. Okay. Well, I can do that, Tanya. That's not that hard. <laughs> Tanya Hendricks. And and you Thank are you. and you're in Alabama somewhere. I am in Huntsville, Alabama. I'm just about as far north in Alabama as you can get. Great. Well, it, it, Tanya, yeah, here's the story. We're taping. Uh, this will air across Central Florida a little bit later in the summer. <clears throat> okay. We have a 15 minute segment and then a 10 minute segment, and I'm going to work off the table of contents. Uh, I will set you up with each of these uh, different areas, and uh, you've got plenty of time to unpack it for us. So, 
Okay, great. We'll have a good visit. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Here we go. Anytime. Angie Ward, our guest in that first segment from Denver, talking about her book, When the Universe Cracks. Well, we go from Denver, Colorado to Huntsville, Alabama, and we have found Tanya Hendricks there, uh, author of Equal Protection Under God, Gender Equality, and Women's Roles in the Church. Tanya, welcome to Orlando. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Mr. Williams, for having me. Why was it important for you to write this book? It was important to write this book because I have seen the look of despair and shame and confusion in the eyes of gifted women that have been rejected by the church, that have been victims of domestic violence or sexual assault or sex trafficking. And looking in those eyes and those faces, I have seen the devastating effects of devaluing women, of treating women as inferior, and women are not inferior. And so I wanted to write this book because women deserve, number one, to know how much God honors and loves them, and women deserve to know that they are seen, valued, loved, and that they matter. Tanya, let's get started. There are six major topics in your book. Uh, Topic number one, the stigma of inferiority. Early lesson in inequality, shared experiences, history is written by the victors. Uh, Tell us all about uh, Section 1. So the stigma of inferiority um, really stems from the the term itself comes from a case. As a a lawyer, I have studied a lot of case law, in particular gender equality case law. So the stigma of inferiority, that term actually comes from a case. But the way I have used it is I have used my experience of growing up in the church and in a society as a whole and not seeing women in positions of leadership. I um, haven't seen women on the stages in the church. And when you, when you look at that as a young female, as a young woman growing up in the church and seeing things around me, when you don't see women in positions of leadership, then you start to internalize that and wonder, well, what's wrong? Why can't women do that? Are women inferior? And it creates the stigma that women are inferior, particularly in the realm of the church, a spiritual inferiority. And so that's where this really comes from. Um, I talk about in the book how when I was a young girl, I wanted to play baseball with the boys, but was told I had to play softball with the girls. And in that age, I didn't know the difference. I didn't know about equality. I didn't understand all that. I just looked and saw the girls had an inferior um, field. It was in the back of the ballpark. It was in a place that, you know, didn't even have good stands. And I was like, why do I want to play with this when the boys have all of this? Um, and, And you saw it, too. We all saw it this past spring with the women's basketball, you know, how the women's, um, collegiate basketball tournament, they were initially given inferior equipment, inferior um, weight room and training room. And so what that does when things like that happen, it makes women think that we are inferior, that we don't matter. And so that stigma can last a lifetime. And this chapter in this section about the stigma of inferiority is recognizing it, recognizing that it is a stigma, and then trying to move past that stigma. 
my guest is Tanya Hendricks. We're talking about her book, Equal Protection Under God. Let's move to topic two, the woman, Eve, and the first sin, the deception, blaming Eve, New Testament. There is neither male nor female, Lydia and Phoebe. There's a lot there to unpack for us, Tanya. Go at it. There is. So this chapter, titled The Woman, um, starts out talking about Eve. And one of the things that, you know, we all, as we grew up in the church, we've heard the story of Adam and Eve. We heard the story of Eve taking the fruit um, from the serpent. And that has, in turn, blamed women for centuries um, for the fall of man and for sin entering the world. What I didn't know and realize until I was in my 30s and at seminary, that when this exchange happened between Eve and the serpent, Adam was standing there. And so when I saw that and recognized it, I thought, why have I never heard that before? Because that changes the dynamics of that story. And I think it would change the dynamics of how women, particularly Eve, but then women subsequently have been blamed for the fall. And, you know, women are are told that we're easily deceived because he was easily deceived. And so if we look back and look at that story and really dig into it, we see that, number one, Adam was standing there. Number two, he stood silent. You know, he was the one originally given the command by God. And he would have been the one to tell Eve what God said about what not to eat, what to eat, what to avoid. But instead of Adam stepping up and saying to the serpent, wait a minute, you are not, um, you are not telling us the correct um, word from, from God. You are not telling us what God actually said. You are twisting the words. Adam stood silent. And when I tell people this, I, and I actually just had someone a few weeks ago who had read this, and she had to stop and went back to her Bible. She's like, I never knew. And she's in her 50s. I never knew Adam was standing there. So this Going back to this story gets back to the heart of, and I think the beginning of, how women have been blamed and viewed through the centuries. And so when we look at that story, we need to look back and go, okay, Eve did not act alone. Adam was there. And Eve should not be the one only blamed for the fall. Adam was there and stood silent and stood silent in the face of evil. At a time when he should have stepped up and shown leadership, he stood, he stood silent. And that's something I want people to look at, and I want it to prompt people to go back and read other stories throughout the Bible. One thing I want people to do, uh, women in particular, is read the Bible, study the Bible. What does the Word say? And not just the words, but the actions. Just like in the Eve story, it, it says that Adam was with her, but it doesn't say that well, Adam stayed silent. But you have to read that into what, ha- what took place there. So I move on from Eve. And I talk about how Jesus in the New Testament is honoring women and how Jesus never blamed Eve for the fall. He never pointed the finger at women. Jesus came and died for all, and we're all one in Christ. When Jesus came and died, he leveled the playing field for women and men, and he showed the true equality. He didn't die just for men. He didn't die just for women. He died for all of us so that we could all be saved from our sins. And so that's why I focus on um, and focus in the New Testament in that section. And, and that, you know, there's a lot that's written and said about Paul and what Paul said about women not speaking in church. 
But I encourage people to go back and read all of Paul's letters. And in, in Genesis 3.28, he says there's neither male nor female. So he is leveling the playing field. And then focusing on Lydia and Phoebe, when Paul got out of jail, he went to a woman's house. And so at that time, whenever a person was named as the leader of a house church, or the, it was that person's house, then that was the leader of the church. And so when he got out of jail, he went to a woman's house, which means he went and sat under a woman's church leadership. My guest is Tanya Hendricks. <clears throat> We're talking with Tanya about her book, Equal Protection Under God. <clears throat> uh, here, we've arrived at uh, topic three, sexual and physical abuse. Here's Esther. Here's Dinah. Here's the rape of Dinah. Here's the silence. Uh, tell us more. Yes. So this one, and you know, I just do. I do want to say in the book, I do talk about some of my experiences working with women who were victims of sexual assault and domestic violence and sex trafficking. So some of this could be difficult for some people to read or hear about. But in this section, you know. One of the things I have experienced, I've worked with abuse victims for over 20 years, and I've spoken in various churches. Every single time I speak in a church, someone comes to me and says, I was a victim. Whether it was trafficking, um, domestic violence, or sexual assault, I always have at least one person tell me they're a victim. And they tell me that I'm the only one they've ever told. And that's a sad reality for a lot of people within the church that they, as a victim, don't feel like they can speak out, and whether their perpetrator was a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a parent, a husband, whatever, they just don't feel like they can speak out. Because, as I've seen far too often, the unfortunate reality is the church becomes more of a uh, refuge or safe haven for the abuser, rather than a place for hope and healing and refuge for the victim. And we see that happening within the stories of Esther and Dinah. Dinah in particular. So Dinah was Jacob's daughter, and she was raped. We hear about the rape, not through her, her perspective, but from the, her brother's or other's perspective. And when I talk about the silence, of, the silence is the silence of Dinah. So Dinah, as the victim, is not heard from. We don't know how she feels. We don't know what's going on in her mind. What happens is her brothers annihilate um, basically an entire city because they're getting back at the person who's the perpetrator. Well, they were doing that because of the humiliation it caused Israel, not what it did to Dinah. And Dinah, we see her becoming a subscript to her own story. And victims of abuse, of assault should not be subscript. And that's what's happened here in this story. And I think what God is wanting us to see through this is for him to include that story in the Bible, is that women should not be silenced. We need to look at Dinah. We need to see her her suffering and what she went through and understand that her voice matters, just like everyone else's does. Her voice matters. And then and so when it comes to Esther, I wrote about her in this context because we have romanticized, at least in my experience, the, the story of, of Esther has been romanticized. But the king didn't come and save her. I mean, the king really just, I mean, there's no other way to say it, but he just picked her out for sex. I mean, that's just, 
how that story happened. And it's we still get the same meaning from the story of Esther that we are here for such a time as this. But what I want someone to do, I want people to read or do, is go back and read these stories and go, well, you know, that wasn't a knight in shining armor coming in and saving Esther. It was a king who had dismissed his previous wife because she refused to be a mere sex object to him. And he brought this young girl in to be his sex slave, basically. And so if we start looking at these stories, we start recognizing the value of the women and the value of listening to and seeing women who have been in situations of abuse. My guest is Tanya Hendricks, and we're talking about her book, Equal Protection Under God. We've arrived at topic four, submissive majority history. What's so submissive, Deborah? Proverbs 31 woman, Mary, the mother of Jesus, women at the tomb, Jesus. Boy, there's a lot to uh, tell us about here, Tanya. Go at it. Sure. Submissive majority, that's the, the two words that were really the words that sparked the idea of writing this book. Um, it, again, comes from, uh, it comes from a case, a previous gender equality case. Um, but when I heard those two words when I was listening to a book on, on CD, or I'm sorry, on Audible, it just, it just grabbed me. And the reason is, I was thinking about the church and thinking about Jesus and, and things that I've seen and gone through as a Christian female. And sitting in church and the studies, and I've, I've quoted some research in the book, the studies bear out that women are the majority sitting in the church pews every week. Women are the ones who are mainly sitting and serving in their churches. So we are the majority, yet we are not listened to. We are not represented. And so when we're not represented, our viewpoints, our opinions, our needs are not heard, um, and they are deemed, in the way I perceive it and the message that I receive from that, is that our opinions and our needs and our values are not valued, that... um, what we think would be important is not so important. So that's where I get the submissive majority. We are the majority in the church, but we are relegated to more of a submissive role. We've yielded ourselves to the authority of church leadership. Instead of us having a seat at the table, we have been relegated to kind of the, the back seat. My guest is uh, Tanya Hendricks. She's in Huntsville, Alabama. We're talking about our book, Equal Protection Under God. Uh, We have another segment with Tanya. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Angie Ward, our guest in that first segment from Denver, talking about her book, When the Universe Cracks. Well, we go from Denver, Colorado to Huntsville, Alabama, and we have found Tanya Hendricks there, uh, author of Equal Protection Under God gender equality and women's roles in the church. Tanya, welcome to Orlando. How are you? 
I'm doing well. Thank you, Mr. Williams, for having me. Why was it important for you to write this book? It was important to write this book because I have seen the look of despair and shame and confusion in the eyes of gifted women that have been rejected by the church or they've been victims of domestic violence or sexual assault or sex trafficking. And looking in those eyes and those faces, I have seen the devastating effects of devaluing women, of treating women as inferior, and women are not inferior. And so I wanted to write this book because women deserve, number one, to know how much God honors and loves them, and women deserve to know that they are seen, valued, loved, and that they matter. Tanya, let's get started. There are six major topics in your book. Uh, Topic number one, the stigma of inferiority. early lesson in inequality, shared experiences, history is written by the victors. Uh, Tell us all about uh, Section 1. So the stigma of inferiority um, really stems from the the term itself comes from a case. As a a lawyer, I have studied a lot of case law, in particular gender equality case law, and so the stigma of inferiority, that term actually comes from a case. But the way I have used it is I have used my experience of growing up in the church and in a society as a whole and not seeing women in positions of leadership, um, haven't seen women on the stages in the church. And when you, when you look at that as a young female, as a young woman growing up in the church and seeing things around me, when you don't see women in positions of leadership, then you start to internalize that and wonder, well, what's wrong? Why can't women do that? Are women inferior? And it creates the stigma that women are inferior, particularly in the realm of the church, a spiritual inferiority. And so that's where this really comes from. Um, I talk about in the book how when I was a young girl, I wanted to play baseball with the boys, but was told I had to play softball with the girls. And in that age, I didn't know the difference. I didn't know about equality. I didn't understand all that. I just looked and saw the girls had an inferior um, field. It was in the back of the ballpark. It was in a place that, you know, didn't even have good stands. And I was like, why do I want to play with this when the boys have all of this? Um, and, And you saw it, too. We all saw it this past spring with the women's basketball, you know, how the women's, um, collegiate basketball tournament, they were initially given inferior equipment, inferior um, weight room and training room. And so what that does when things like that happen, it makes women think that we are inferior, that we don't matter. And so that stigma can last a lifetime. And this chapter in this section about the stigma of inferiority is recognizing it, recognizing that it is a stigma, and then trying to move past that stigma. My guest is Tanya Hendricks. We're talking about her book, Equal Protection Under God. Let's move to topic two, the woman. Eve and the first sin, the deception, blaming Eve, New Testament. There is neither male nor female, Lydia and Phoebe. There's a lot there to unpack for us, Tanya. Go at it. There is. This chapter, titled The Woman, um, starts out talking about Eve. And one of the things that, you know, we've all, if we grew up in the church, we've heard the story of Adam and Eve. We've heard the story of 
Eve taking the fruit um, from the serpent. And that has, in turn, blamed women for centuries um, for the fall of man and for sin entering the world. What I didn't know and realize until I was in my 30s and at seminary, that when this exchange happened between Eve and the serpent, Adam was standing there. And so when I saw that and recognized it, I thought, why have I never heard that before? Because that changes the dynamics of that story. And I think it would change the dynamics of how women, particularly Eve, but then women subsequently have been blamed for the fall. And, you know, women are, are told that we're easily deceived because Eve was easily deceived. And so if we look back and look at that story and really dig into it, we see that, number one, Adam was standing there. Number two, he stood silent. You know, he was the one originally given the command by God. And he would have been the one to tell Eve what God said about what not to eat, what to eat, what to avoid. But instead of Adam stepping up and saying to the serpent, wait a minute, you are not, um, you are not telling us the correct um, word from, from God. You are not telling us what God actually said. You are twisting the words. Adam stood silent. And when I tell people this, I, and I actually just had someone a few weeks ago who had read this, and she had to stop and went back to her Bible. She's like, I never knew. And she's in her 50s. I never knew Adam was standing there. So this, going back to this story, gets back to the heart of, and I think the beginning of, how women have been blamed and viewed through the centuries. And so when we look at that story, we need to look back and go, okay, Eve did not act alone. Adam was there. And Eve should not be the one only blamed for the fall. Adam was there and stood silent and stood out in the face of evil. At a time when he should have stepped up and shown leadership, he stood, he stood silent. And that's something I want people to look at, and I want it to prompt people to go back and read other stories throughout the Bible. One thing I want people to do, uh, women in particular, is read the Bible, study the Bible. What does the Word say? And not just the words, but the actions. Just like in the Eve story, it, it says that Adam was with her, but it doesn't say that, well, Adam stayed silent. But you have to read that into what, ha- what took place there. So I move on from Eve, and I talk about how Jesus in the New Testament is honoring women, and how Jesus never blamed Eve for the fall. He never pointed the finger at women. Jesus came and died for all, and we're all one in Christ. When Jesus came and died, he leveled the playing field for women and men, and he showed the true equality. He didn't die just for men. He didn't die just for women. He died for all of us so that we could all be saved from our sins. And so that's why I focus on um, and focus the New Testament in that section. And, And that, you know, there's a lot that's written and said about Paul and what Paul said about women not speaking in church. But I encourage people to go back and read all of Paul's letters. And in, in Genesis 3.28, he says there's neither male nor female. So he is leveling the same field. And then focusing on Lydia and Phoebe, when Paul got out of jail, he went to a woman's house. And so at that time, whenever a person was named as the leader of a house church, or the, it was that person's house, then that was the leader of the church. And so when he got out of jail, he went to a woman's house which means he went and sat under a woman's church leadership. 
My guest is Tanya Hendricks. <clears throat> We're talking with Tanya about her book, Equal Protection Under God. <clears throat> uh, here, we've arrived at uh, topic three, sexual and physical abuse. Here's Esther. Here's Dinah. Here's the rape of Dinah. Here's the silence. Uh, tell us more. Yes. So this one, and you know, I just do. I do want to say in the book, I do talk about some of my experiences working with women who were victims of sexual assault and domestic violence and sex trafficking. So some of this could be difficult for some people to read or hear about. But in this section, you know, one of the things I have experienced, I've worked with abuse victims for over 20 years, and I've spoken in various churches. Every single time I speak in a church, someone comes to me and says, I was a victim, whether it was trafficking, um, domestic violence, or sexual assault. I always have at least one person tell me they're a victim, and they tell me that I'm the only one they've ever told. And that's a sad reality for a lot of people within the church that they, as a victim, don't feel like they can speak out, and whether their perpetrator was a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a parent, a husband, whatever, they just don't feel like they can speak out because as I've seen far too often, the unfortunate reality is the church becomes more of a uh, refuge or safe haven for the abuser rather than a place for hope and healing and refuge for the victim. And we see that happening within the stories of Esther and Dinah, Dinah in particular. So Dinah was Jacob's daughter, and she was raped. We hear about the rape not through her, her perspective, but from the, her brother's or other's perspective. And when I talk about the silence, of, the silence is the silence of Dinah. So Dinah, as the victim, is not heard from. We don't know how she feels. We don't know what's going on in her mind. What happens is her brothers annihilate um, basically an entire city because they're getting back at the person who's the perpetrator. Well, they were doing that because of the humiliation it caused Israel, not what it did to Dinah. And Dinah, we see her becoming a subscript to her own story. And victims of abuse, of assault, should not be subscript. And that's what's happened here in this story. And I think what God is wanting us to see through this is for him to include that story in the Bible, is that women should not be silent. We need to look at Dinah. We need to see her her suffering and what she went through and understand that her voice matters, just like everyone else's does. Her voice matters. And then and so when it comes to Esther, I wrote about her in this context because we have romanticized, at least in my experience, the, the story of, of Esther has been romanticized. But the king didn't come and save her. I mean, the king really just... I mean, there's no other way to say it, but he just picked her out for sex. I mean, that's just how that story happened. And it's, we still get the same meaning from the story of Esther, that we are here for such a time as this. But what I want someone to do, I want people to read or do, is go back and read these stories and go, well, you know, that wasn't a knight in shining armor coming in and saving Esther. It was a king who had dismissed his previous wife because, she refused to be a mere sex object to him, and he brought this young girl in to be his sex slave, basically. And so 
if we start looking at these stories and we start recognizing the value of the women and the value of listening to and seeing women who have been in situations of abuse. My guest is Tanya Hendricks, and we're talking about her book, Equal Protection Under God. We've arrived at topic four, submissive majority history. What's so submissive, Deborah? Proverbs 31 woman, Mary, the mother of Jesus, women at the tomb, Jesus. Boy, there's a lot to uh, tell us about here, Tanya. Go at it. Sure. Submissive majority, that's the, the two words that were really the words that sparked the idea of writing this book. Um, it, again, comes from, uh, it comes from a case, a previous gender equality case. Um, but when I heard those two words, when I was listening to a book on, on CD, or I'm sorry, on Audible, it just, it just grabbed me. And the reason is, I was thinking about the church and thinking about Jesus and, and things that I've seen and gone through as a Christian female. And sitting in church and the studies, and I've, I've quoted some research in the book, the studies bear out that women are the majority sitting in the church pews every week. Women are the ones who are mainly sitting and serving in their churches. So we are the majority, yet we are not listened to. We are not represented. And so when we're not represented, our viewpoints, our opinions, our needs are not heard, um, and they are deemed in the way I perceive it and the message that I receive from that is that our opinions and our needs and our values are not valued, that um, what we think would be important is not so important. So... That's where I get the submissive majority. We are the majority in the church, but we are relegated to more of a submissive role. We've yielded ourselves to the authority of church leadership. Instead of us having a seat at the table, we have been relegated to kind of the, the back seat. My guest is uh, Tanya Hendricks. She's in Huntsville, Alabama. We're talking about her book, Equal Protection Under God. Uh, we have another segment with Tanya. Stay with us here. On the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, this is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Tanya Hendricks is with us. We're talking about her book, Equal Protection Under God. Tanya, we've arrived at topic number five, Equal Protection Under the Law, the 14th Amendment, the Standard, the Beer Case, Immutable Characteristic, the Value of a Woman, Being a Mom. Uh, Explain all that to us. All right, so Equal Protection Under the Law uh, really gets back to my roots of being an attorney and studying case law. And so... We have, as Americans, we have the um, we have the privilege of having equal protection under the law. So we can we can go from state to state and both be treated equally. And that's where equal protection under the law comes from: is we are to be treated equally from place to place. The Fourteenth Amendment is the amendment to the Constitution that guarantees that equality. And when it comes to women, um, 
what we have learned and what the Supreme Court of the United States has shown us, and they've affirmed over and over, is that women are valued. Women are valuable members of society, and that women can't be discriminated against simply because they are women. <clears throat> and so the Beer case is one that, you know, it's a funny case that deals with some equality. The immutable characteristic that you mentioned, you know, what the law says is that we cannot discriminate based on immutable characteristic, such as being born a woman. You know, I can't, I guess there are some ways now that people are changing that, but I, I'm not, I can't change that I was born a woman. And I should not be discriminated against simply because of that that accident of my birth. Um, anything, any type of discrimination should be built based on abilities, not simply being a female. Let's move to uh, topic number six, separate but equal, origins of separate but equal, reversal of Plessy versus Ferguson. Unequal treatment of women, women's sensibilities. Uh, what are you telling us here? Well, what I'm getting at in this chapter, it's a, it's a short chapter, uh, but I'm talking about how women are women are not allowed in conservative evangelical churches and not allowed to be preachers over men. So, But women can do conferences, we can have seminars, but when it comes to Sunday mornings, it's off limits. And there's a similar... A, ca- a similar legal doctrine that popped up years ago, I mean, years and years ago, called Plessy versus Ferguson. It was a case out of Louisiana, and it's, it, it had to do with race. And it said that a, you know, as long as there were equal facilities, there could be separate facilities for black Americans and white Americans. Brown versus Board of Education in the 50s said, nope, that's not, we can't do that anymore. That is um, unconstitutional. And so... What I want people to see in this book is that there are cases that deal with inequality. There are cases that have happened through the United States Supreme Court history that has torn down the walls of, of inequality. And Tessie versus Ferguson is one of those. And so when I use that phrase in, term, in, in, the, in the context of this book, it is pointing out that women are allowed to have these separate conventions, these separate um, conferences, but it's not the same as being able to preach on a Sunday morning. And so that is something that I believe the Bible, and as I get through um, later in the book, we talk about how there's nothing that Jesus says that prevents women from being preachers. And so we need to we need to let go of the separate but equal mentality that we have in the church and just say that everyone is equal and has the ability to preach if they have been called to preach. So, Tanya, let me, pu- let me put it to you this way. Uh, Beth Moore uh, is interested in becoming the senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Huntsville. Um, should, be, should she be hired? She's, she's an awesome Bible teacher. Uh, what, do you, what do you think? If God has called her to be a preacher... And he has certainly given her the ability to preach. There is nothing that God has said in his word. There's nothing that Jesus has said that would prevent her from being a preacher at you know whatever church, First Baptist or whatever church in Huntsville, Alabama. In fact, Jesus is the one who told Mary when he rose from the dead and, and Mary Magdalene was standing there, he told her, 
go tell the men. He told a woman to go tell the men that he was arisen. So he didn't say, yes, women can preach, but he told a woman to go give the word to the men. That's kind of fascinating, isn't it? It is. What do you want people to take from your book and and our chat here, Tanya? I want, number one, I want um, people to go back and really study the Bible, read it with open eyes. But two, I want people to know, particularly women, know that women are valued members of the church. God, and I mean, God honors us so much, and there's so much that Jesus does in his ministry that elevates women and shows women how valuable they are. So I really want people to take that from, the, from my book. Tanya, when you say you want people to read the Bible, boy, that can be overwhelming to people. Um, do, do you have a good method that works? or what, what advice do you have for a young Christian who are struggling uh, getting into the Bible properly? My advice would be to start with the gospel. Start with Matthew and read through Luke and watch Jesus, because as Christians, our faith is centered on Jesus. He is the plumb line. He is our. He is who we're supposed to be watching and learning from. So the first thing to do would be to just read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and study. And I say when I say study, just really think on what is Jesus doing. What are his actions, and what is he saying, and who are the characters involved? And then once you read those, you know, right now I'm actually going through Proverbs. I do Proverbs one a day. Um, so today's the 15th. I read Proverbs 15. That's a great, other great and easy way for people to start to kind of immerse themselves in the Bible. Because um, Proverbs has so much wisdom and so much guidance. But really focus in on what Jesus did and said, and those that's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Are you big uh, an encourager about memorizing Scripture? I do, uh, I do encourage people to memorize Scripture. Um, I think we do a poor—I do a poor job of it because it's so readily available. I can just—if I—because I, I kind of know what Scriptures are out there, and if I— can't remember exactly the way it, it is quoted or where it's from. It's so easy to pull up my phone and Google it. But we do really do need to memorize Scripture. What's the best part about living in Huntsville, Alabama? Oh, gosh. Um, probably the people. We have just tremendous people here who are warm, open, um, because we've got Redstone Arsenal here and NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, we have just a melting pot of people from all over the world here. And it's been great to, to meet people from other parts of the world, um, to be in an area where people are um, encouraging of education. And in addition to that, I mean, the city is just great. We have a lot of lakes nearby. We have the Tennessee River that runs through Huntsville. We have a lot of outdoor activities to do here, mountains, not huge mountains, but we do have mountains that we can hike, and um, the city has just been wonderful in bringing in concerts, and we do concerts in the park. It's, it's a great family atmosphere that is, on a, you know, one side progressive because we are very education-minded and have so many people from, from around the world here. 
Tanya Hendricks has been our guest. Her book, The Equal Protection Under God. Tanya, thanks a million. I'm so glad that we could uh, chat. Thank you so much, Mr. Williams. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I just want to remind you folks that uh, we are working and trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, Florida, and you can be a big help. Uh, Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com, and just check in. Uh, Give us your name and address. If this works, uh, perhaps you'd be interested in season tickets of some sort down the road. So we need to hear from you. Just... uh, Express yourself about this idea of bringing Major League Baseball to Orlando, Florida. Well, we've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening, of course, to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. I just want to remind you folks here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour that my latest book is out. It's called Revolutionary Leadership, and we look at 25 leaders who were so critical uh, during the Revolutionary War period, helping these 13 little colonies uh, win a war against Great Britain that they had no business winning. Great Britain had better everything. They had better armies and better navies and better supplies and better weapons. They had better everything, except uh, the Americans had better leadership. That was the difference. And we take a look at these uh, 25 key leaders, do a chapter on each one of them. I think you'll enjoy it. Revolutionary Leadership by Pat Williams. Ravel is the publisher. Well, we're back next weekend for more. On the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, stay tuned to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Just stay tuned all day long, and your life will be better for it. We'll see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word.